And so we're going to be in Jonah chapter 3, picking up where we left off. I'm going to read the prayer of Jonah chapter 2 and in the entirety, all 10 verses of Jonah chapter 3. Up to this point, we have seen, I think, uh, this kind of this, this strange and, and magnificent work where God sends one of his prophets, Jonah, gives him a sense of identity and says, go and be and to say all that I give you to go, to do, to be, and to say. And just like our tendency, when, when we hear an authority over us, we run. We go, nah, I'd rather not. I'm going to do my own thing. And God, being a loving and merciful father, pursues Jonah and redeems him and restores him, rescues him, saves him through miraculous, borderline, unbelievable means. And we find ourselves there as Jonah in the depths of the fish, beginning of verse 1 of chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice for you cast me into the deep into the heart of the seas and the flood surrounded me all your waves and your billows passed over me then I said I am driven away from your sight yet I shall again look upon your holy temple The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought my life from the pit. O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown." And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. 
And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. I have tried to make the case over the last few weeks that every single thing necessary to understand the Bible, to have a biblical worldview, and every single component necessary to understanding the world and how it works is present in the book of Jonah. Everything you want to understand about the Bible, there's, there's, hint, there's pieces of it. There's seeds of the gospel throughout the book of Jonah. So much so that we'll see next week Jesus quotes it. Everything you need to know about the world. I know that's a, that's a broad statement to make, Jonathan. Are you really sure that's true? Yes. Everything you would need to understand the things going on in the world are present in the book of Jonah. And they come to a head here where everything that's happened, all the miraculous things that have happened, the transformation in Jonah, it boils into this experience that we have here in chapter 3. The trajectory for the book is found here in chapter 3. Everything turns from here. You, you'll see one of the most powerful things that will summarize the Bible and everything you need to know about God in this. We saw over the last couple of weeks, God speaks. God is not silent. God speaks. And when God speaks, dead things come to life. Things that are nothing become something. From the very first story of creation all the way to what we believe God has done for us in Jesus, God speaks. God is speaking. God is not silent. God is not up there and out there, some distant God, but God is present with us and God is speaking. He is calling his people to himself. And what is their first response? Whether you're talking about, whether you're talking about Adam and Eve or every single person who heard the word of a prophet, or even now as you hear me going, God speaking to you, what do people do? We run and hide. Run and hide. Fight or flight, usually just flight. And that is the case for Jonah. God speaks and says, this is who you are. This is your identity. And Jonah, just like every single one of us, goes, no, I get to say who I am. I'm God. I'm the one in charge. You leave it up to me, God. And he runs and goes in the opposite direction. You get it? See the components of human nature, the nature of God, all starting to play out. But something powerful happens in verse 1 of chapter 3. And you can, I, I could spend a month just preaching on this one concept in verse 1 of chapter 3. God speaks again. God speaks again. Don't miss that. This is, this is a story about the grace of God, that God pursues his people, okay? And just to make sure you understand that, if I was God and I was writing the Bible, it would only be three chapters long, right? And God spoke and all this stuff was good and he makes Adam and Eve and it was great. And then, and then the one thing, the one thing that these people were not supposed to do, they did. And you know what God, Jonathan does? That's enough of that. Wipes them off the face of the planet and moves on. That'd be the, end. the Bible would be a short book, right? Short book. But that isn't the case. We worship a God that in his grace is not like you and me. He doesn't abandon them and give up on them. He speaks to them again. He pursues them. He runs after them. I had a reminder of this uh, this last week. and I, I want you to see the Father heart of God that's present in the last verse of chapter 2 and the first verse of chapter 3 that sets the stage for the entirety of the Bible. And what I want you to begin to realize here is that this is the nature of God that Jesus tells us as our Father when he teaches us to pray to this God um, this last week, I, um, I was in Sam's, uh, sorry, not Costco, I know, sorry, judge me later, but so, um, so I'm, I'm in Sam's and something 
that from the pit of my own stomach, like, turned up. Uh, I was looking at something. I was like, hey, to my wife, I'm going to go get this thing. I walk over here, and, and this thing that has happened to me uh, since I was a child happened again. I turned around, and my people are gone, right? Uh, I kid you, I'm not exaggerating. Probably 20 different times I would go, uh, I would go to Walmart or whatever with my parents, and I was the kid. Did you ever hear the, the, the thing on the, the inner? Yeah, don't lie. This is my pain here. This is not a joke. So, like, the, you know, the, you know I, I hate to say this because you're going to know a whole bunch about it, but here we go. This is, the, this is the actual name of my parents. Randy and Candy Land, uh, your son. That's, yes. There you go. Again, get that out of you. Laugh at my pain. Laugh at my pain. Enjoy it. And this is a comedy club. This is, come on. So, so Randy and Candy Land, uh, your son, we have your son here, right? And I, I, I'm not exaggerating, like 20 times. At le- I mean, I, that's probably even, uh, it's probably more than that. Uh, I would go and just get lost. And I don't know if this is the case with you. Maybe you've never lost a kid. Maybe this has never happened. Um, but that's kind of our thing. As soon as a baby learns to, like, crawl, it starts to crawl away. As soon as a baby learns to walk, it starts to walk to places it's not supposed to walk. Um, right? As soon as, this, as soon as this begins to happen, um, our nature is to run, right? To run from comfort. Sometimes we come back, but our, our nature is to run away, okay? And if those of you who can't relate to this, it's just maybe you only have toddlers, your, your, your kids can't run away just fast enough yet, okay? And, and this is the nature of our own hearts, is to run away. But I want you to see the loving heart of the Father. Like, I'm, I mean, I, again, this is, I presume at some point my parents were not going to leave without me. I think. <laughs> I think this last week my wife wasn't going to leave without me. I think at some point she would have called me on the cell phone because she knows I wander off. She's well aware of this. But a good parent chases the child. A good parent pursues the child. And I want you to see the loving heart of our God as a father. There's this beautiful picture of the entirety of the Bible that can be summarized in this humble pursuit. Godly, God relentlessly seeks us out. Never stop. Did you catch that? Like, there's this declaration, these two verses, if you put together. Salvation belongs to the Lord. The Lord speaks to the fish. Fish vomits Jonah out, sins. Remember, don't be freaked out by the fish. It's just like a, it's like a Hebrew taxi. It's like an ancient Near East taxi, just getting people from where God uh, wants them, you know, where they, where they want to be to where God wants them to be. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Jonah rebelling against him and running away from God. God, God restores him, and, and the minute he's thrown overboard, there's like a fish, just a, just a convenient miracle, wouldn't you say? Just an utterly convenient miracle. It just so happens to be a fish, a miraculous means by which Jonah is taken three days later to where he belonged all along. This is the story of the Bible. Verse 1, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. If I could just encourage you in any one way, there's, there's a powerful thing at work in what is about to happen. That we have a God of mercy and a God of grace who even much better than the, the greatest father or mother you can imagine relentless, relentlessly pursues his children. And so the temptation for us is to find our identity in ourselves and our own achievement or our own failure. And our temptation is to say, that's it. This is certainly, I'm, I'm certainly done in. This is certainly all God can handle. This is bound to be the last straw. There's no way 
God could restore or redeem me from where I am now. Then the word of the Lord comes a second time. Whether you're Adam and Eve, right? Rebelling against God in the most obvious way, thinking, surely this is the end. This is surely where God smites us, destroys us, wipes us off the face of the planet. Right? Or whether you're under the judgment of, of the evil of the world we see later, that, that God begins to wipe the slate clean and passes his wrath through the story of Noah. You've got to be thinking, this is the end. And no, what? God, through watery, chaotic, gets this over and over again, means delivers his people. And the word comes again. And that word, I don't know if you caught that, that word is not a word of wrath or judgment. That word is a word of mercy. I shared this with you. This is one of the most powerful things we celebrate at Easter. Jesus comes back from the dead. Um, and if I come, like, if you betray me and I come back from the dead, okay, that's a horror movie, all right? Because that's it. You had your shot. It's over. Like, this, I come back, I haunt you, I destroy you, right? This is, this is how I would work. So most people would work. But the story of Jesus overcoming death isn't a story. It's not a horror story. Jesus comes back and he shows up in the midst of his disciples and they're terrified. And what does he say? What does he say? He goes, peace be with you. Peace is with you. The word of the Lord comes again, and that word is not a word of judgment, revenge, or destruction. It's a word of mercy. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. There's a lot of great resources, I think, that can help us kind of fathom the depths of some of these things going on in Jonah. One of my favorite up to this point uh, is, is an Old Testament scholar by the name of T. Desmond Alexander. And he, he, begins, he begins to open how, as he explains this chapter this way. And I love it. It's been, I, can't, I can't perfect it. I can't, I can't do any better than this. He says, by paralleling the opening remarks of the book. Remember, the first words were what? God speaks a word to Jonah. He runs, okay? And he, and he almost word for word. There's a few different vari- uh, variations in chapter 3 from chapter 1. By paralleling the opening remarks of the book, almost word for word, the author skillfully conveys the idea that Jonah is being offered a new beginning. In spite of his earlier refusal, he has a fresh opportunity to fulfill the divine commission. The entire Bible, the entire Bible, every single bit of it, the entire Bible is about a God who gives fresh opportunities and second chances. It's the story. Because remember the first story, right? This first story is God makes it good, and then there's people, and they mess it up. And you would be like, well, that's the end of that story. It's not. The entire Bible, from beginning to end, is God restoring his people, humbly pursuing him, lowering himself to pursue his people. This is powerful. The father heart of God is to chase his children, even when they're the ones who run away. But then he gives us a task. Then he calls Jonah to the original task. Now, don't miss this. Um, remember, we saw a few weeks ago that God exposes us by giving us a hard thing. If you want to know what you really value, you begin to consider the hard thing that God calls you to. Jesus did this relentlessly. Someone would walk up and they would say, hey, Jesus, I want to follow you. And Jesus would be like, no, you don't. Here's the thing that's keeping you from me, from, from following me. God does this beginning to end. God offers himself to us and demands a hard thing. And when he does that, it, it exposes what we really value, what we really worship. But something happens. After he transforms Jonah, he asks of him the hard thing again. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. Then God transforms him and then gives him the hard thing to do again. Don't miss this. The miraculous grace that God has shown to Jonah in the fish 
is not an end of itself. It is ultimately to fulfill God's good purpose in the world. The kingdom he was creating, the image he is bearing from the beginning of Adam and Eve all the way to the end that is restored in the church in a new Jerusalem, a kingdom coming down to the earth, is the same beginning to end. God is doing this. He is restoring this. He has a purpose for his glory, for your joy, our good. And even when you rebel against it, when God saves us, redeems us, puts us back into the place where we rightly belonged all along, he puts us right back to work. This is important because Jonah has to kind of die to himself and then he gets it. You see, God doesn't just give us the gift of his love and grace so that life will just be grand and awesome. It's important that you know that. God gives us his grace in order to send Jonah and us on a mission. In this case, to the literally the most difficult and dangerous, hardest place imaginable. The Assyrians, the first modern empire. By modern empire, I say that lightly. I mean the first, the first empire to be forged beyond just a city-state to where it was a nation-state that lasted for more than a century. And you know when an empire does it, it does it by accruing power and exerting force and influence and demonstrating radical acts of violence. Every empire does this. Every empire is forged by the death of someone else. And so we see this powerful thing here. This amazing thing. God gives a second word. God doesn't just call us in that second word to joy, not just to enjoyment for our own sake, but ultimately for a mission and a purpose that is God's. And in this case, to the most difficult place for Jonah to have imagined. Now, this is a, a beautiful thing that happens. I, I want you to kind of catch this. He, and at the beginning, he heard this and ran. But something transformed him that we saw in chapter 2 to where in chapter 3, he obeys. Word for word, word of the Lord comes to Jonah, go. And what we find here in verse 3, so Jonah arose. Now, he did that last time, remember? Arise, go to Nineveh. Verse 3, chapter 1. But Jonah arose. To do what? To flee, to run away to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But we find here in verse 3, so Jonah arose, not to flee, but it says obediently, went to Nineveh according to what? According to the word of the Lord. And Nineveh, we find out, is a great city. This is a good translation for this. It, it's not just that Nineveh is massive. It's also that Nineveh is important. This is the, would have been the central location for uh, something that would have forged the culture uh, for centuries to come. And he's called there. At first, he's terrified of it, as you would be. Remember, this is Nineveh. This is the great, 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 whatever, grandfathers of ISIS. Okay? So ISIS now is holding a stronghold in northwest Mosul, Iraq. Okay, Mosul, Iraq, it sits on what used to be Nineveh. Get the picture? So have some pity for Jonah. God calls him to a hard place. He runs, but then when he restores him, calls him right back to the hard place. Something different happened. Though. Instead of running from God, he runs boldly and courageously into it. And I have, to, I have to get you to see the connection here. I have to get you to see that what happened in chapter 2, the transformative prayer that begins with just an experience of distress, but then acknowledges the sacrificial need to cover and atone for our own sin that addresses idolatry at its root and then experiences grace to the point where we declare that salvation belongs to the Lord is the beginning, the seeds of the obedience that happens in chapter 3. 
If you don't get this transformational experience of God's deliverance and his grace, you will not get the obedience in chapter 3. Period. And so God does an amazing thing here. He calls Jonah, changes his heart, and then the second time he comes and gives him a more merciful word, then he obeys. He sends Nineveh to this great city, a violent city. So something massive happens here. God doesn't just love Jonah. God doesn't just want to restore Jonah, but the ultimate trajectory of this is God loves the city. But don't miss that. The violent city. The city that wants no part of God. That's God. Remember, the humble, pursuing father pursues even the most violent. And he sends Jonah on the way. So God doesn't just save people for their own good. He saves them for his glory and the purpose in the world. God is doing something, and when he saves people, he puts them on to mission. Don't miss this. When God restores you, he restores you to his purpose in the world. But the connection we see between chapter 2 and chapter 3 is this. Unless you begin to grasp the gravity of God's salvation, you will never be a part of God's purpose for your life. Notice the prayer. Remember, Jonah was in distress. He was in the depths, as low as he could possibly go. Uh, One of my mentors used to talk about this. Um, I I love the way he would say it. He would say, the best thing about hitting rock bottom is that you find out there's a rock at the bottom. And so there's this powerful picture of Jonah being as low as he could possibly go, to the depths. And yet God restores him so that the last last thing he declares in verse 9 is that God saves. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And once that transformation happens, once he's had this radical encounter with God's grace, then he's ready to obey. So, here we go. This is is all I'll push on you because this is the trajectory for the next three weeks where we wrap up here going into Nineveh. God saves people not for their own good, but for his glory and his purpose. He is going to let you loose on the world and accomplish his purpose. He doesn't just save you because you're awesome. And this is what this looks like for you. If you find yourself right now, if you find yourself confused about what you're supposed to do, if you're like, what do I do next? Now some of you have a lot of big decisions like right in front of you. And you don't know what to do. You're like, I want to obey God, but I don't know what he wants for me. Can Can I push on you? You don't get to experience the joyful obedience of chapter three because you have not fully experienced the radical grace of God in chapter two. You will run around aimlessly until this gets a hold of you. And the extent to which God's grace is radical and transformative in your life is the extent to which you will have joy in this world. And so I, here's, I know you're like, well, that's quite simplistic. Like, Jesus is the answer to everything. Yeah. And so right now you're like, what do I do, Jonathan? What do I do? That's not the right question. The question is not what do you do. The question is who are you? Because if you don't know who you are, then there's, it doesn't matter. But once you know who you are, then you know what to do. And once you see that God saved you, that your identity has now been given to you in an unmerited, an unobligated way, then you know what to do. And all I know is, like, if you're, if you're, if you're in this spot right now, I know this is for a lot of you, like, I don't know what to do next. What's my next step? What's my next move? I'm so confused. Friend, you're confused because you have, I think, underestimated God's grace in your life. Because when you understand what God's done to save you, 
get it. God's salvation propels us to mission. God, here's, here, here's the way. I, I, don't, I mean, I, I just want to thesaurus bomb you on this. God's grace launches, slingshots, propels us into our city. When God has saved you from a great deal, you can't keep it a secret. We've talked about this uh, at length in other places. I, I'd love to tell you more about this, but the truth of this is that like, people, people are scared, like Jonah is scared, to talk about God to people they don't know. And it is because they have radically missed what God has actually done. And so here's what I'll tell you. You will do evangelism. You will tell people about God. The question is, who is God and who are you? You will tell people about your God. You don't believe me? Ask a grandparent about their grandkids. They won't be like, oh, I don't know. I, I'm, I think I'm going to get on a boat and run to Tarshish. Like, no, they're not afraid. They're like, are you kidding? Would you please sit down here? I mean, and... And, and and the advent of the smartphone, it's like, my grandkids, look at the grandkids. This one, this one, this one, this one he's doing this. He did, like, have you been in this? Maybe that's not enough. Ask a person about their pet. Their, excuse, their baby. You will, you will proclaim the good news of your God. You will look for opportunities to work it into every single conversation. Even conversations where it doesn't fit. The thing that you exalt, the thing that you worship, you will proclaim to your city. You will proclaim to every single person who is willing to sit still long enough for you to tell it to. And whatever that thing is, that thing that you're just trying to, you're dying to get into to every, every single conversation. For some people, it's achievement, right? And you can't have a conversation with a person without telling someone where you graduated, what grades you got, or what position you got, or the last, you know, or maybe like, maybe it's not just your achievement, maybe it's like you're you just how clever you are, right? And so every time you see somebody, you can't wait to tell them what a good deal you got on this thing or what this, this, you know, how smart you are and how you, you're outsmarting the world and you're winning at life. You'll look for opportunities to tell them about that. You will tell people about your God. Your God will propel you. It will launch you. It will push you, pull you, drag you into its purpose, into its glory and into its namesake for its fame amongst the nations. You will do this. So when God propels Jonah to Nineveh, he's demonstrating something about the way the world works and the way your heart works. Your God will propel you into conversations about your God. So just think for a minute. What's the thing you're dying to tell people? Right? Like, hey, good to meet you. I'm so-and-so. Good to meet you. What's that first thing that you've got to squeeze into that conversation? I need them to know about me. I don't want them to think I'm this. I need them to know about my God, my achievement, my comfort, my status, my power, my authority, my control. What's that thing? Because you will, again, your God will propel you into its purpose for its glory and its namesake. It will happen. And if it is not the God of the universe, the God who saves, the God who picks us up from the pit, then you will share your salvation from your other God. Don't miss the connection. Jonah goes to the enemy. Jonah goes to the violent. And he says to these people how great his God is, how they ought to return to God, repent of what they're currently doing, and worship and exalt his God. Why? Why would he do such a thing? Why would he walk into the lion's den and declare who his God is? The answer we see connected between chapter 2 and chapter 3. Salvation belongs to the Lord. 
he had been saved of something amazing. He'd been saved in a miraculous and powerful way. God had done this. God had accomplished it. And God had shown that he is able. God had shown and exposed something in Jonah by asking a hard thing, then transformed him by something, and then given him the ability to achieve that hard thing. Not because of any merit on his own part. No, he was running away from God. But because of God's grace and mercy in his life. Remember, unless you begin to grasp the gravity of God's salvation, you will never be a part of God's purpose in your life. Or, for that matter, in our city. And you'll continue to tell people about how good your God is. Whatever that is. Don't miss that. Jonah, Jonah is propelled. He's launched into the city because he experiences something. Like, and this is something that's supposed to stir us, right? You've you got to imagine the kind of confidence he must have had, right? Like if you just spent a couple days in a belly of a whale, right? It'd be hard to be scared of anything else after that, don't you think? It'd be, it'd be kind of difficult to be intimidated. Like he walks into Nineveh, like, what are you going to do? Throw me in the ocean? ha <laughs> ha. I mean, like, and, and this is my own personal opinion. The way that the people responded, they listened. Now, historically, we see this especially with the Persians, but it wasn't uncommon for dynasties of this era for something to happen, usually because they didn't understand things that were happening. Like, a natural disaster would take place, like a famine or a drought. And so it was common for the, the, the ruling authorities to tell everyone to, to, like, stop doing all your bad stuff. Honor the gods because we need your help. Right? Because like, you know, I don't know, like a, a solar eclipse would happen. And, and if you didn't know what that was, you would pretty much think that's the end of the world. And you'd probably say, hey, guys, whatever you were doing, please stop doing that. Let's stop doing that for a minute until this passes. And, and so it's common for this kind of repentance to take place. But don't, don't miss how difficult that still would have been for Jonah to walk into the belly of the beast and say, hey, stop what you're doing. If you don't believe me, again, go get you a ticket, get a visa, get you a, get you a passport. Go to northern Iraq, go to Syria, find the headquarters of ISIS and be like, hey guys, quit it, stop it, please, no more, right? You get this? But he obviously isn't afraid. And what, am what an amazing confidence he must have had. My personal theory is that one of the things that probably allowed them to listen to him, I bet like, I, I, this, is just, this is me trying to like rationalize this or understand this, but he's probably sitting in this, this fish and like all the things that, I, I mean, the all the things that would digest you in the belly of a fish probably has a, would probably affect your physical appearance. I should like to think it would probably mess up the color of just about everything. And, and you've got to imagine that guy who walks in and says anything you're going to listen to. It'd be like, have you guys heard the fish guy? Have you, heard, have, you, have you heard the fish guy? He's walking around telling people about God, saving him from a fish. You're like, well, that sounds ridiculous. I don't know. Have you smelled him? Like, this, and, and I, you got a picture, probably the fish guy in the city. And everyone listened, all the way to the king. And Jonah boldly went in there. He must have had an amazing confidence. What would inspire that kind of confidence? What would give a person that sense that nothing could hurt you? That you're invincible? Boy, you would have had to, had to experience something transformative, wouldn't you? Well, you'd have to have confidence in your invincibility. You'd, you'd have to have a pretty deep confidence in something to walk into that kind of a dangerous place. Friend, I, I wonder if the reason we're not propelled into God's purpose for his glory 
amongst the nation, much less across the street in your neighborhood in our city, is because we have lost sight of how good a thing it is that God has done for us in Jesus. Here's the way I, I, I would explain it to you. The depths from which God has saved you sets the distance you will go. In other words, if God hasn't saved you from much, you won't go to many. After all, if God hasn't saved you from much, then this good news I'm talking about, it's not that great. It's not that impressive. And you're right. You should talk about your actual God, your family, your pets, your job, your achievements. Go tell people about that. Because the depths from which you've been delivered will set a trajectory about the distance and the length to which you will go. And friend, if you're looking, if, unless the prayer of Jonah resonates with you, if you're looking at yourself and you're thinking, man, I'm really kind of awesome, of course God saved me, well then you're right, why would you tell anyone else? God didn't save you for his glory and his purpose in the world, he saved you because you're awesome. I wonder, this is what I wonder, if our temptation to keep the gospel a secret, to talk about anything other than Jesus, is rooted in the fact that our hope is in anything else other than Jesus. Because if the, the depths from which God has pulled you aren't that great, then you're right. Why tell anyone anything? If he hasn't saved you from much, why tell anyone? You get it? i got to get you to see the connection between the radical grace of God demonstrated that in chapter 2 that transforms Jonah... He doesn't just live in the area of distress. He doesn't minimize his sin. He grasps the weight of his sin, longs for the atonement in the temple that only God can give by taking sin seriously, but also taking the price he's willing to pay for sin seriously, recognizing that ultimately the idolatry will keep him from God's grace. And when he sees this, salvation belongs to the Lord is what he declares. And then it becomes a lot easier to go to the hard places and to do the hard things. I wonder, my own opinion here, the reason you're afraid to tell people about Jesus, because he's not that big a deal from you, for you. Your sin's not that big a deal. His glory's not that great. Saving you just seems like a good investment on his part. Friend, I have a devastating beginning to the good news that we declare. It was from the depths. The depths caused by Jonah's own disobedience that God saved him. It was while you were the enemy that Christ died for the ungodly. It was while you were dead in your trespasses that Jesus in his mercy chose to come one with you and pull you out. This, this is a beautiful thing for us. And it propels us, it launches us into mission. So just begin to weigh that out. Mathematically even. Just think about it. You're awesome. I get it. Your achievements, your personality, your influence, your comfort, these are all awesome things you've, you've accomplished. And so if that's the most awesome thing about you, then that should be the thing you always talk about. But if it's possible that God's done something for you that's eternal in nature, something that nothing on earth can destroy, if God has given you an inheritance, a treasure that no one can tarnish or steal, if God has done something for you of infinite worth, don't you think that would be the thing you talk about? 
Don't you think you'd want to squeeze that into every single conversation you could? I mean, you, you, brag about your, <laughs> you, you brag about your family or your kids or your job. What would it be like to have, like, I don't know, the most rich and powerful and person on earth is your dad who is set to give you everything he has as an inheritance? I think you'd probably try to find a, put that in, a way to put that in the conversation, don't you? And so here, here's where we land. This is what, this, as it propels us, as this grace of God propels us into the purposes of God, his love for the city, I want you to connect the dots. Because you'll say, how? What is it that we do? Uh, what is it that we're supposed to do? What, what do I do now? Okay, so, so if I believe that Jesus is Lord, now what do I do? So here's where I want to push on you. Okay, so, so maybe if you're not a Christian, maybe you wouldn't call yourself a believer. I'm really glad you're here because I want you to get, really, why we even think you're here and what we want to share with you and what we want to share with our city. God has done something for us that we can no longer keep silent about. And this is what happens. You'll say, what do I do then? Okay. Well, our message, the good news that God, salvation belongs to the Lord, verse 9 of chapter 2, our message is actually our model. It's humble pursuit. What did I tell you? I started with this. The story is that we have a God who is, treats us like a father that even when we run off and wander off and get lost in, you know, Walmart, whatever, he doesn't abandon us, he pursues us and he draws us back to himself because he's just a good father. That's the way he works. And that's amazingly good news, isn't it? Isn't that incredibly good news? That, no, that you, you have an inheritance from a heavenly father that, that loves you and hasn't abandoned you, isn't going to forsake you, but instead he's going to pursue you. He's going to come and speak to you another time, a third time, a fourth time, a fifth time, on down the line, until you finally hear it. Oh man, how convenient. There's salvation right here. There's a fish right off the side of the boat. Wow, that's really great of God to do that. Get it? This is the good news of what God has done for us. At just the right time, we saw Christ died for the ungodly. This is good news. So you're like, well, what do I do with it? That message of good news is our method. The good news of a pursuing God who humbly pursues you is our message as well as our method. We now pursue like the Father. We do what our dad does. We wait, we pursue, we remember how God and his mercy has pursued us with love and kindness and care. And this changes everything that we do. Just start to weigh this out, right? So you've got a great job. I just want to ask you this. Is that great job yours because you're awesome? Because you're really deserving and you worked really hard? Is that why you have that great job, a great position, a great family? Because you're just so awesome? Or is it possible that we have a loving father who is infinitely wealthy and he loves, the Bible tells us, to lavish gifts upon his children, just like any child, any father loves to do with his children. And when they want bread, he doesn't give them a stone or snake. He gives them something that's good for them. Is it possible that that thing that's so good for you, your job, your comfort, your pleasure, or even a push, even your sorrow, even your struggle, is it possible that God has entrusted that to you to glorify him and be for the benefit and blessing of the city in which he's put you? Or is it just because you're that awesome? But I want you to see here, when we begin to realize that God is awesome, his mercy is great, it propels us into a purpose we never knew existed. It propels us into something we never thought existed. And that message of good news is our method. 
we are now adopted children who start to look more and more like our father, our father that pursues people who run away from that which is good and helpful. And so what do we do? We, we pursue people the same way. We pretend we're a fish waiting off the, off the bow of the ship in, in the storm. And when something hits, when tragedy strikes and crisis hits, we're there going, I'm here for you. I'm here for you. Why are you here for me? Why would you do that? Why would you be here for me? Because God was here for me. I can't deny his mercy by denying you the same kinds of grace. Now, here's what I think I'll leave with. One of the frontiers of our mission for us today in our city and in this world is this picture of God's transcendence. And here's what I know. If you were born after 1950, arguably around that time, you were implicitly, maybe not explicitly, you were implicitly told that the transcendent being in the universe is you. You're the treasure. Now, even if a person calls themselves a Christian, they were implicitly told by their culture that they ought to elevate themselves. Because in the end, you're the one that's special. So our natural response is one of disgust when someone says that God is sovereign, is Lord over all things. We think, what an arrogant God. What an arrogant God to impose his will onto ours. I'm the transcendent being. Who does this God think that he is? That he is? And who, who, who does he think he is demanding all this glory and all this worship for himself? And if you find yourself naturally pushing against that story of God and his glory, then friend, you've missed the story of Jonah. You are Jonah. You've missed the story of the rest of the Bible. This is not an arrogant God. If God were arrogant, he would detach himself. And when Jonah runs, he lets him die. When Adam and Eve run away, he leaves them be. When his people rebel against him, he would detach himself, he would move on, he would move himself to a gated community and kick all of the annoying people out. At best. At worst, he would just destroy us. But this isn't an, ar this isn't an arrogant God that we worship. Instead, what does God do? For Jonah, for us, he's the one who stoops to us. He's the one who lowers himself to demonstrate his great love and patience. Remember what Desmond Alexander said? He gives fresh opportunity to enjoy himself, to enjoy his grace. He gives second chances. So this is what this means. The worst thing that could happen is I don't want to guilt you into sharing this good news of Jesus. I don't want to be like, you have to tell people about this God who saves. I don't want that. That, that would be a fail. Here's what I get to tell you. You get to tell people about what God has done. You get to. Do you remember the depths from which God has plucked you by his grace? You get to tell people that at the next cocktail party. Do you remember the gravity and awfulness of your sin? You know that one, the one that you won't tell anyone about. The one that you're praying that no one in this room will find out about. Remember that one? That's the place from which God has drawn you out and set you beside him on his throne and given you a piece of his purpose in the world. Oh, friend, you don't have to tell anybody about this God. You get to tell people about this God. You get to tell people like Jonah what you used to be like, what you used to smell like. You get to tell people about what it was like when you were without hope 
when you were without a place in the world, when you were not a people, and he has now made you into his own. When you were a stranger and far off, and now he has adopted you as family. Oh, friend, you don't have to tell anyone this. You just get to be a recipient of it. And you get to let that change everything you do and say. Thank God that in the depths he did not abandon us or leave us. And thank God that in Christ as he draws us out, he has not done so for some paltry or superficial cause, but that the God of the universe and his mercy has drawn us out of the depths and now invited us to be a part of his grand purpose. Here's what I say. As you see the transformation of Jonah and the mission that he's on to the city of Nineveh, let's do this. Let's, let's be this. Let's be the people who were saved from the depths and now have a message to the world. And we consider the depths from which we've been taken and now take it to the ends of the earth for the glory of Christ amongst the nations. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your goodness and mercy. God, I thank you for Jonah. I thank you that he has demonstrated even for me what it looks like when I pridefully uh, seek my own glory, when I pridefully uh, desire my own fame, uh, when I make much of anything but you. God, we confess that we relate a great deal to Jonah uh, because if we were given the option, we would, we would do anything but the hard thing. Uh, we would like the comfortable thing, the easy thing, the thing that brings us comfort and pleasure. We're tempted to being on a regular, we're tempted to thinking on a regular basis, we are the transcendent being, we're the sovereign one. Our will is the one that matters. So God, would you begin now to, to walk us out of the depths? If there's some in this room, maybe they've never considered the possibility that, that what God has done for us in Jesus is a magnificent or meaningful thing. Would you just begin even now? Would you just stir their curiosity? They would consider, is it, is it true? Is it true that my sin is this egregious? Is it true that I'm this far from God? And is it possible that he's been pursuing me all the while? Would you begin to open our eyes to this truth that you have from the beginning been reconciling the world to yourself. You've been calling individuals back into your family and now you are calling the world together for your glory and you've invited us to be a part of it. So maybe if we know this good news, maybe, maybe the trouble is for us, we've just minimized it. We don't really think it's that great. Uh, God saving us from our sin seems like a small thing. Would you begin to inspire us? If we've lost that joy of our salvation to the point that now we talk about anything else but Jesus, uh, would you begin to stir up in us a sense of discontentment, a sense of holy and righteous indignation for the glory of your namesake in our city? Our desire, God, is not that we remain in the depths or that we wallow in pity, but instead that we are drawn out of the depths and now we live for a new purpose, a new kingdom, a new joy that is so contagious we can't keep it a secret. Begin to do that in us. Uh, begin to do that through us. And as we declare the, the price that was paid by your son Jesus, let this be a joyful declaration for the sake of our city to the end of your glory. In your name, amen.